Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Lowe Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Oh, hello! It's time for another episode of The Spark Parade. I'm your host, Adam Unz. Thank you for joining me. This week, you'll be treated to my chat with writer, editor, and film critic, Violet Luca. We had a lovely chat about Taste of Cherry, the 1997 Palme d'Or winning film by Iranian director Abbas Kurastami. Does that sound interesting and exciting to you? I hope so, because it is. You're going to love it. But before we get on to the main course, we have the appetizers, don't we? Or starters, if you're British or Irish or Aussie or Kiwi or possibly Canadian. What do Canadians say in terms of starters or appetizers? Who knows? DM me if you know. This, my friends, is what's known as digression. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about how other people can and do affect the way people consume art. So, artwork gets created by an artist or a group of artists, and then they put it out into the world. But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are tons of external forces that can shape your perception of the work. Some of them are intentional, trying to sway you one way or another. Marketing and publicity from the artist's representatives, reviews, etc. So the way you're going to experience the work could already be tainted by the opinions and agendas of other people before you've even engaged with it. And when you do actually experience the work for yourself, you'll still be affected by the way in which other consumers experience. Maybe you overhear someone talking about the history of a sculpture when you're looking at it in a gallery. Or the people behind you in a movie theater are cheering for the villain instead of the hero, and that affects your experience. Or you're at a concert, and everyone around you is ignoring the show and talking about their workday. More on that later in the show. All of these outside influences help to create the memory you'll have of engaging with that piece of art. Whether they change your opinion of the piece itself is really down to the situation, but your experience as a whole is inevitably infected by other people's behavior. Streaming and on-demand services have shifted some art consumption away from the public sphere, but experiencing art is still a predominantly communal experience. Even in your home, all alone, you're still going to be affected by other people because of the internet, unless you're really, really fucking determined, and even then, it's doubtful you'll succeed. So, for better or worse, other people's actions will always shape your engagement with the arts. Okay? Good? Great. So, 
It's almost time for my chat with Violet Luca, but I need to give you a little disclaimer first and then a little background. We're talking about Taste of Cherry, and there's just no way for us to have a discussion about it without massive spoilers. Or maybe there is a way, but we sure didn't attempt it. So, spoiler alert! If you haven't seen Taste of Cherry, which, may I remind you, came out in 1997, so you've definitely had time. If you haven't seen it yet, and you don't want to know what happens, watch it right now, drop everything, and then listen to the episode. If you have seen it, or you don't care about spoilers, just keep listening. Now, I think the plot of the movie is clear from the conversation I have with Violet, but I'll just give you a quick rundown in case. So here's a synopsis stolen directly from IMDb. An Iranian man drives his truck in search of someone who will quietly bury him under a cherry tree after he commits suicide. Cheery, right? Don't worry, our conversation is cheery even if the subject matter isn't. So here's my chat with Violet Luca about Taste of Cherry. So, Taste of Cherry. Mm -hmm. Could you have been old enough to see it in a theater? I saw it in college. Yeah. I saw it in college as part of a course. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I saw it in a college course, and this was a little bit after I had seen, um, maybe like a few months after I had seen Red Desert by Antonioni, and that film really just sort of helped me realize that movies could be something very different from what I had seen before, and that they could be very allegorical and sort of... It, you know, visually and in terms of the story and just um, very complicated. And then as I, a few months after that, I saw this and it was just, again, sort of like pushing this idea of what I realized movies could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am a person who feels like I didn't get very much from college at all. Like <laughs> I, you know, made a couple of friends and that's pretty much what sticks in my mind. But definitely film classes Um, I got the most value from and learning how to watch films, learning how to appreciate them and also expanding my idea of what film can be Mm -hmm. was totally, I, I recognize that experience, um, too, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because film and sort of visual media are all over the place, but it's not, you don't learn that anywhere, uh, any other part of school, right? mm -hmm. It's just sort of like, well, art is drawing or painting or clay, and music is this, and literature is that, but you never really, or at least when I was growing up, maybe it's different now, but like there's no, there was no really um, effort to do like a deep dive and be like, hey, what they put in front of the camera is important. And like how mm-hmm. they cut the, you know, the, how they assemble the space is important. So yeah. 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 And I think for a movie like Taste of Cherry, where it's like the focus is equally on dialogue and story as it is on the landscape mm-hmm. and the setting. A lot of the criticism that I've read has said that it's like too slow moving or that it doesn't, you know. Did you read the Roger Ebert review? <laughs> oh my God. His, his name his name keeps coming up <laughs> in basically everything that I talk to, um, anytime that I've talked to anybody about a movie. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's one of those things that's like any 70s movie, you're going to come across like a Pauline Kael review mm-hmm. and any 80s or 90s movie, it's going to be Roger Ebert. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's pretty representative of 
the negative reviews and I felt like it was just completely missing the point. It was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's why he was never my guy. I mean, it's funny. Like yeah. I know so many colleagues or people I know who write about film, they're like, oh, Ebert, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, nope, never, never had a phase where I was interested in what he had to say. Yeah. It's weird because I sometimes feel like he's more beloved as a celebrity than as a critic. Mm-hmm. And he had this huge cultural impact on by bringing film criticism to like TV and pop yeah. culture. Um, but I don't necessarily agree with his pin- opinion very often. Mm-mm. And um, especially on this, just saying things like the homosexual subtext was very confusing <laughs> and I didn't understand why that would, you know, why he wouldn't want to just say outright what he was trying to achieve. And I think there's no avoiding spoilers here. Yeah. So if anybody hasn't watched the movie, go and watch it and then come back. Yeah. But when you're asking somebody, a stranger who you've pulled off of the street to check to see if you are have successfully killed yourself and bury you if you have the awkwardness that comes along with asking that question it's like so obvious to me that that would be the reason why he would be kind of skirting around the issue and trying to find a way in and to me that read as awkwardness that he is not thinking about how it could be misinterpreted because he's nervous and desperate well and there's also the issue of like censorship Literally, there's film censorship, you know, and um, I feel like a lot of the ambiguity in the film sort of arises from that. But also, as you say, this is um, this is a weird request. It's not an easy thing to ask. And especially because it's like, you know, when he's talking with the um, second man who is Afghani and he's there studying at a seminary, he says, well, what's the difference between killing someone else or killing yourself? It's still killing. Mm -hmm. It's wrong. And um I believe that if you, I I read this, I'm not sure if it's true. Don't believe everything you read online, but they (laughs) said that um, in, if you, if someone in Iran had done that to just sort of like bury someone who had killed themselves, they would be considered an accomplice to murder Mm. because it is, you know, sort of against, it is against the religious laws to bury someone who has killed themselves. I, I thought each individual conversation was really interesting in that way that it's Mm -hmm. like, I, I guess part of it is desperation, but he, it's like he doesn't want to give up no matter what the other person's circumstances are. So mm-hmm. like somebody who says, I was in your sa- the same position, I tried to kill myself, and I the, the smallest thing stopped me from doing it and gave me a reason to live. And he's still like, okay, cool, but will you do this for me? <laughs> yes, um, yes. And, you know, obviously it gives him more to think about, and um, that person probably touches him the the most out of that all the people who he stops to talk to but um that drive to continue with this mission and um the fact that he does he ever say why he wants to know what he says is um i've decided to free myself from this life why it wouldn't help you to know and i can't tell you about it Mm -hmm. and that's all that he says yeah he's just very straightforward i mean i you know I feel like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, like that to me, not to bring every aspect of this conversation back to (laughs) fucking Roger Ebert, but um, (laughs) that felt like one of the things that he was really missing where he's just like, there's all this ambiguity and I just don't understand why we can't know the reasons for things. And to me, it doesn't matter. That's not really the point. Mm -hmm. And um, 
it the fact that he's saying that explicitly like why the why did you why do you care what does it matter the thing that matters is that i need to do it and i yeah. want your help and i really love that the ambiguity and the fact that it makes it more like a, a fable mm, um yeah. and that the lessons come from the things that you are told and you don't really need the information that's left out yeah i mean it is sort of like um like a little a metaphor for the film an allegory for the film itself where you're in this car and he's sort of driving around this same pretty barren landscape and you can see that there's so much life and the world is so big outside of the car but he's just so focused on what you know on his task what he needs he needs to find somebody to help him and that their conversations are kind of like debates you could have with yourself and think, you know, philosophical, different approaches to the meaning of life, what it means to end life. Um, and it's just, um, I mean, I also think it's interesting that he chose to have the three men who he asked, or Mr. Body asked to bury him. You know, one is a Kurdish soldier, pretty young. Second man is an Afghani who's studying at a seminary. And then the third guy is a Turk who's a taxidermist. And these are... Mm-hmm. Um, they're not Iranian, you know, they're and they're all men who have sort of ended up in Iran, you know, by either by sort of, you know, they were called there for whatever reason, like the, you know, with the Afghani uh, guy, he's sort of he went to Iran, not because he was like, oh, I really got to really love this place. I really got to get there. But because he wanted to get a better education and like, you know, the the Kurdish guy was um, drafted into the army. So it's not like these men are necessarily totally in control of their own will, right? They're just mm-hmm. sort of like, they've been pulled to this place. They're trying to make the best of it. And now, you know, another thing, you know, they've sort of been thrown a wrench with uh, this bizarre, maybe homosexual request. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, with the um, information that's kind of alluded to, but is not necessarily like giving a little bit of background about each of those people, mm-hmm. mentioning conflicts in the region, different wars that affect, affected different people's lives, mm-hmm. but not then making that the focus of the film right. so that it's this, this essential part. And you know that that's the, the backdrop. That's what's been happening in uh, those people's world. So, it, it, you know, the fact that it's set in this kind of desolate part of Iran mm-hmm. is, it, it is kind of a story that could happen anywhere, but it's essential that it's in the place that it's set. Yes. Um, and also showing that bit at the beginning where he is driving past all of these men looking for work so that to me, instantly, that says it's not unusual for someone to be driving around asking for someone to do a bit of work for them. Yes. It's just the work that he's asking them to do that's unusual. Yeah. And that he, you know, he drives through that very sort of crowded, I guess, day laborer area. And it's clear that he doesn't choose any of those guys because they all know each other. They're mm-hmm. all friends. And if, you know, he asks one and is rejected, then they'll everyone will know mm-hmm. and he needs to and again this is a pr- incredibly private semi-illegal thing to do mm-hmm. um you know maybe unethical thing to do uh so he is sort of picking people who are isolated who are out in the middle of this nowhere place and just um again never losing sight of his mission i can't help but think of the part where he's sort of like driving and his car sort of gets caught on this cliff and it's mm-hmm. like well you could have just done it right, yeah, right, <laughs> but, right. but he does it he does yeah. it and he wants to have this very dignified 
death and he feels that it is his right and um there's no there's no question mm. and just having the ritual that he's planned mm-hmm. be as important as accomplishing the the end result yes also the idea of perspective about the same subject that mm. like each person that he stops has a different reason for wanting to reject the proposal and they're all you know completely different ends of the spectrum um but i really found it interesting that the taxidermist um his perspective not just on you know this man's life and why he shouldn't kill himself but just simple things like you know saying oh let's take this this route this Mm -hmm. is the um this way is slower but it's beautiful and you know from somebody who's looking at the film from the outside it's like they all just kind of look like dirt roads through the same <laughs> place, but just that difference in perspective, like saying, I want to do this because I see beauty in the world around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, having that bit of optimism at the end, I, 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 that was the most like touching part to me. And again, I just, I don't understand how somebody can watch that movie and not be emotionally <laughs> affected by it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess taste is subjective. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, um, I think it's another reason why I feel like this film has stayed with me for so long is because, you know, there, you know, again, even though it is a very spare, fairly desolate uh, landscape, it is very dramatic. It sort of has this natural, poetry and just how you know sort of these winding roads that maybe kind of don't go anywhere um but again the road is not the point it's sort of um faces the the faces of these different men and sort of you know the the little and when you're sort of reduced to seeing you know it it, i mean you couldn't you couldn't really do this in a play let's say because there are definitely films where it's like okay this is just clearly this was a play and they weren't very creative with it. And it's very, it's just sort of taking place in one room, but this is so much about faces and this, you know, changing scenery. And they're just, um, I always think of that one shot where he's Mr. Body is standing and he sees his shadow as the dirt falls down. And it's just, I don't know. It's just really incredible and, and true in like in a very poetic way. Um, yeah, it's just, it's incredibly expressive. Yeah, and really Such affecting. A, yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah, that that's uh you know, like I was saying in the beginning, the um the story is one really powerful element, but the way that it's shot and the use of the natural scenery but also light and shadow mm-hmm. tells the story enhances the story that's being told mm-hmm. so much and it's just really really beautiful to look at. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah, I feel like, I feel like, um, words fail me when I try to talk about this film. <laughs> and I'm just, it is, it is, it's, it's such a simple concept, but it's so beautifully executed that, I mean, it, again, the, I can understand why it may not speak to everyone, but it, it, it's definitely something that's like, I'm very glad that I got to a point. Uh, in my film appreciation where I could, mm-hmm. you know, get <laughs> super get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think ambiguity in storytelling can be done, you know, very well and also can be too much. Sometimes yeah. people leave you not understanding anything and um, put too much 
onus on the the audience to may, fill in the gaps mm-hmm. and i don't think this that's the case with this like there are the the ending is a little open or well the ending before the right. actual ending yes. um but when he kind of goes out and is lying in the grave and you don't really know what he's going to choose yeah uh, uh i really like having to do a little bit of work especially with something that's as well made as this yeah um and there are more extreme examples you know the more abstract that films get the you know if you're talking about like something that david lynch has done or right, something right, like right. that it's a, a lot more work and um a lot more gaps to fill um but with this film i thought that it's a pretty straightforward story mm-hmm. um and the things that are amb- ambiguous about it are um subtle enough that it makes you feel like um you can draw your own conclusions but you're not being left completely empty-handed when it finishes yeah no i feel like there is there are definitely times where ambiguity is just laziness Mm -hmm. (laughs) definitely um and i think also that you know uh, there's definitely there's a way to do it where you're sort of asking the right questions or you're leaving out the right amount of information and you know in the years since this has been released like it has sort of become like the dominant mode, the dominant style of like art house independent films, um, mm-hmm. which is a pretty, you know, I, I recently uh, had to write something about um, Ingmar Bergman and it was so fascinating to go back and realize just how popular those films were and that they were just so dense and there's all this, stuff, there's just so much going on and like it's asking these huge questions and it's so relentless um and that now that's not really nobody really does that anymore and Mm. now it's very much more like this where it's very quiet and um the questions are there but they're not so um pressing they're not they're not in the mouths of the characters filtered through like some Jungian psychoanalysis stuff or or you know sort of the 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 you know this surreal imagery um and here it's just like it's taking a lot of the natural world and really um pushing it and i it was i feel like an important thing for me i mean i don't know i was never somebody who was like what does the blue key in mohan drive mean (laughs) but i think with this um this with the you know the final the final scene which is like this video footage of um these soldiers and a crew filming these soldiers Mm -hmm. um that it was just sort of like there are no right answers when it comes to art and that you can you know sort of there are definitely there are probably some wrong answers but there are there are there is no best answer that is totally the thing because i think again you know looking at hollywood films or just other films where the the symbolism is just so very out there you do you can fall into that trap of being like well that's the right answer well that's clearly what it was and then you can get into a debate about like well the artist didn't mean that but my interpretation maybe is more interesting than the artist or that you know the artist has blah 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 all this stuff but here i mean um i don't know that's the 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 video footage is just um it's really crappy. It's very mm-hmm. disruptive. Mm-hmm. It's totally unlike anything that came before, but also it isn't because it has all these soldiers, which was a theme throughout the whole, everything that preceded it. It's more or less in the same area. 
And there's this sense of, you know, and the sort of like New Orleans dirge that plays mm-hmm. is very suggestive of what, what is, has happened or simply that maybe all of these men are dead. Maybe some of them were injured. Like again, it's, um, it's sort of, you know, was Mr. Body among these soldiers? Cause he says that he was in the army. Like it, it throws everything out of joint, you know, sort of when you were expecting a re- nice resolution or some resolution. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's something that I can watch over and over again and have a totally different, you know, think completely different about every mm-hmm. time. And I've read, um, a lot of reviews describing that as breaking the fourth wall, but mm-hmm. it really isn't. No, it, it's, it's not. not a, it's not. It's like showing that filming has gone on, mm-hmm. showing the actual director directing people, or it's kind of looks like they're on a break, like they're all smoking, kind of standing around, mm-hmm. showing the actor um, and showing these soldiers around, but nobody. They they in turn are being filmed, but nobody is acknowledging the camera that they're being filmed by. Right. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting choice as well, that it's like acknowledging the film as a piece of art and acknowledging that it is a film and that they're telling a story, but then kind of including themselves in the story and making the filming of the film part of the story as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it again, it calls into question, um, well, is what we, you know, everything we've seen with Mr. Body, is that just something that it was imagined because obviously when you're driving around the back roads of Tehran, you are doing a form of documentary, right? Mm -hmm. You're catching what these different people are wearing, what they happen to be doing on this day where they were out filming. Um, And then, so you go through that and then you come to this video footage and it's like, well, was that the dream or is Mr. Body like lying down in the grave? Is this what he his mind goes to? Was this mm-hmm. something he just saw on television and he happens to remember? Was he, um, you know, what his relationship to it? And he sort of like joins the audience in a way. And we're or it kind of screws up what what necessarily is real and what is a fiction and what anybody's role in the world really is. Mm-hmm. But like I I don't know. It's um it was very. It was very um, avant-garde in a certain way. I mean, I think in the sort of the questions he was asking um, or sort of posing about, um, you know, what is real, what is not real, or, you know, is carried throughout this whole thing. Because, like, you know, maybe Mr. Body is not driving around Tehran. Maybe he's just already, you know, he's just thinking about you know, what he would say to somebody. He's, you know, he's in the shower. He's having like one of those hypothetical arguments like, well, you know, should I kill myself? Well, what would I say if somebody said this? Um, Or, you know, he's already passed away Mm -hmm. or that, you know, because of film censorship in Iran, you can't actually show what happened to him. So like there's, there's all this stuff going on. And again, it's playing with these forces that maybe, you know, they're totally outside of, what we understand in the film. They're totally, there are these other things at work and we're, you know, we're very small. And Mm -hmm. so is Mr. Body is also very small within the grand scheme of the universe. Yeah. And having to consider, I mean, I I think that is, again, why it's so important to really acknowledge the setting and um, the cultural impact of the filmmaker being Iranian and um, what, the, the impact that the Iranian government has on the 
ability of filmmakers to do their job mm -hmm. in that country. Um, yeah, it's uh, like uh, so many other complex things to think about that have nothing to do with the film itself. Yeah. Another thing, I'm exhausting myself coming <laughs> back to it again, but um, a reaction mm -hmm. to Roger Ebert's um, temper tantrum of a review uh, <laughs> was you know, he was saying how bored he was mm -hmm. and how he just, you know, is so slow and listing off all the things that he didn't like about it. And somebody was saying that it's like, you know, it's, it's innovation in film. It's somebody telling a story in a way that you're not used to and that the reaction to any innovation in film has always had, um, been negative and positive. And kind of comparing it a little lazily, I thought, to mm -hmm. like the reaction to the French New Wave right. and saying, you know, nobody liked the jump cuts in Breathless. Mm -hmm. um, and now they're totally standard and mm. part of every film. Um, Even crappy CBS like detective shows have mm -hmm. jump cuts. Right, right. <laughs> like it's all over. <laughs> right. Um, and so keeping an open mind, I, I mean, that's not to say that you can't be critical and mm -hmm. there are also things that people do when they're trying to innovate that end up being absolute dog shit yes <laughs> um but in this case it was like i yeah i, I don't know I, again taste is subjective but it felt really fresh and exciting to me mm -hmm. um and i find it really interesting and kind of crazy that people would interpret that as something boring i when i was in college after seeing this i was just like so obsessed with the idea of rethinking narrative and sort of getting away from a three-act structure getting away from something where you know a ca very causal sort of universe where a goes to b goes to c um and then there is a climax and then it ends like i just wanted to this this was very much like helpful to thinking that there are different ways to tell stories and that they can be just as powerful or even more powerful than like a really well-constructed like El Edward Albee play or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like there, there are ways to, there's so many different ways to get to where you want to go. And it, it always says, um, I don't know, it, it looms large. <laughs> yeah. And I know, you know, there are financial factors that come into people's decisions and stuff, but I think there is a big fear of breaking away from mm -hmm. the traditional three-act structure and that if you're going to break away from anything traditional about filmmaking, it's like taking a three-act structure and making it into a three-hour movie instead of a 90-minute movie. Right, or vignettes, or, yeah. Right, and it would be interesting to see somebody like Clint Eastwood. I mean, I think part of it is you get to be powerful enough and famous enough that nobody's going to challenge your ideas anymore. Right. Nobody's going to make suggestions or, you know, earnest suggestions. <laughs> but it would be really interesting to see him make a movie that's like has that action can be left on the periphery and not be the focus at all and not be the thing that people are waiting for. Yeah. And the action can be implied in the person's job and the circumstances, but mm -hmm. trusting that audiences will respond to smaller, calmer, quieter stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because like there's, you know, there's this idea that, oh, people in the US, they'll never watch a movie with subtitles. They want to have this. They want to have that. But like I look at, I, I try to watch reality TV and there are a lot of similarities between what, <laughs> what reality TV does and something like, you know, 
sort of your standard international art house film where there is very little action. There's lots of talking. Mm -hmm. You get a sense of place. You get a sense of all this, you know, drama that may be happening in their lives, but there's no real acting on it. Maybe there's like somebody gets into like a weird slap fight because they're really drunk on Chardonnay, but there's no real like, it's very slow. I'll just say there isn't always a very clear line of action in mm-hmm. a given episode. And so it, it gives me hope that maybe someday Bravo will go back to showing like art house movies <laughs> instead right. of like weird housewives of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think. Uh, may yeah. not happen. Yeah, they may have to get rid of Andy Cohen first. <laughs> yeah. And then and then they're, uh, yeah, the next person can uh, take a few more risks. But that's such an interesting comparison. It is like, I think it's just with perhaps trashier uh people <laughs> yeah i know they're sexy they're yeah. like good to look at that's yeah. why that's part of the selling point yeah we all understand yeah. but still maybe someday they'll do a big remake of taste of cherry with like some instagram fitness model yeah yeah <laughs> it'll be I, big yeah. um on that note i think uh <laughs> that was a good chat you feel yeah. satisfied yeah great thank you um who if uh people want to find out about you and read your work or hear your podcast or uh, anything like that where where should they go um so i i'm at harper's magazine and i host their podcast where i sort of talk with people about you know what they've written for the magazine and other like little one-off audio projects and then i am always you can find me on twitter at um at unbutton my eyes um, oh, what's the what's the podcast called? It's just the Harper's Podcast. Okay, cool. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Great stuff, wasn't that? I may be slightly biased, but I think we can all agree that that was an objectively good time. Yes? Yes. Thanks again to Violet Luca. Check out her writing. She is very smart and very insightful. Okay, now, recommendations. Another busy little week for me. I went to the Basquiat show at the new Brandt Foundation Museum in the East Village. It was great. Lots of amazing work spread out over four floors, so pretty comprehensive. And the building is really cool, too. Um, I think the show is sold out except for standby tickets, so I'll post some pictures on Instagram for you. I also went to a couple of concerts. First up, I saw Santi Gold who is touring in support of the 10th anniversary of her self-titled debut album, which is basically a greatest hits collection because it's wall-to-wall bangers. It jumps across a bunch of different genres, and I was really amazed by and obsessed with it when it came out, and I still am. And she was incredible. She sounded amazing. Great crowd banter. Amazing visuals with lots of glow-in-the-dark, black-lit outfits and props. An incredible choreography with two dancers who were absolute genius. 10 out of 10 would watch again. I also saw Empress Of when she played the Rainbow Room for a fancy pants party in honor of the Freeze Art Fair. She played an amazing set and sounded incredible, but I have to give her a special commendation for putting on a tremendous show in a room full of people who were mostly there to just get drunk. As I was saying in the intro, your perception of art is shaped by other people, and man, is it ever a different experience to watch a concert when no one is really there to see it. But she gave zero fuck about the lack of energy from the crowd and really gave it her all. Oh, and did I mention that the whole crowd was revolving on a dance floor too? So even people who were paying attention to her kept getting turned around? There were a lot of obstacles in her path, but it didn't affect her performance at all. So yay for Empress of. Okay, that's it. 
follow me on social media at Spark Parade, please. Also, please leave me a review and rate the show wherever you download because that helps new people to find me. And other than that, just have a great week. You deserve it. Until next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.